Tonight's reading is taken from Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Uh, I don't recognize many of you, although we are at the same church. Uh, my wife and I go to the 930 service with our three young children. So um, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. I've been asked to preach on this passage. It's just been read. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And I'm meant to talk about the sure foundation found in Jesus. Rubbing exhausted eyes with calloused hands, Onesimus ascended from his straw pallet. The sun was now peeking over the mountains east of Ephesus, the signal that his workday in the fields had officially begun. As he managed to choke down what was left of the stale bread on his otherwise barren table, Onesimus was acutely aware that he had once known better years. When Onesimus was 16, he had been sold to a wealthy businessman in Ephesus who specialized in the production of silver shrines in the image of the goddess Artemis, the legendary patroness of the city. And Onesimus had proven to be a good purchase. He was a quick learner, was extremely energetic, and his superb skills and craftsmanship meant that last year, now only in his early 20s, he had become the chief silversmith in his owner's very lucrative business. Now, to be sure, as a slave, Onesimus never fully realized the financial benefits of his work, but he was a valuable commodity, and so his master had treated him well. And of course, Onesimus enjoyed all the benefits of living in a high-flying Roman city that had certainly earned her right to be the capital of the Asian province. Located strategically on the coast of the Aegean Sea, the city was constantly bustling with tradesmen, politicians, educated elite, famous athletes, and tourists. Not like Oxford, of course. 
many of whom purchased Onesimus' silver idols at inflated prices. Almost every day, coins displaying the youthful heads of the emperors, Augustus, Claudius, Nero, and cluttered with catchphrases like Son of God, Vindicator of Liberty, Pax, and Hope of Augustus have passed through his fingers. And every day as he traveled through the newly developed upper city with its colored colonnades, buildings, and temples, one of which was dedicated to Augustus, he was reminded that it was true. The Roman emperors had given a dramatic facelift to the whole world. But now these memories seem like a distant dream. It's a long story that cannot be told fully here, but the short version is that he had been introduced to a powerful message about a God who actually loved him. In fact, so much that he had sent his divine son Jesus to deliver all people from sin and death, regardless of their station in life. And upon hearing this fresh message and observing the community of people from all sorts of backgrounds who met together regularly and seemed genuinely to love one another, Onesimus had put his faith in God. Now, for a chief idol maker in Ephesus, this decision naturally resulted in a very precarious situation, which ended in the worst possible way. After politely inquiring whether he might be allowed to make products other than the Artemisian idols, his master had him beaten relentlessly and starved for a week. And when this tack didn't work, Onesimus was forced to work long, scorching days as a manual laborer. He had one month to resume his idol-making, or else he would remain in this situation indefinitely. And so as Onesimus stumbled out the door with five days left to decide his future, he was beginning to have second thoughts. Meanwhile, Julia and Rufus had risen much earlier than normal in order to attend to their guest, Tychicus, who had arrived the previous evening and would be staying them for a few weeks. Now, Julia was a wealthy Roman aristocrat who owned most of the shops in the city. Her business was carefully diversified and thus had flourished in recent years, even when there were times of financial crisis. Her company, for example, had overseen the redecoration of the temples of Artemis and Augustus. She had provided raw materials for the expansion of the sewage system in the upper part of the city. And for five years running, she had sponsored annual athletic contests in the city. Julia's husband, Rufus, was a very influential lawyer in the city, and he had been elected to several chief offices, including Asiarch, a group of uber-wealthy individuals chosen to administer all the imperial activities in the whole province. Naturally, then, Rufus and Julia enjoyed living in a com complex mansion with three levels and adorned with a fully equipped courtyard, including fountains, an aquarium, and elaborate mosaics. We call this, by the way, the houses of the rich on the east side of Ephesus. And of course, their house was situated in the posh district on the east side of this city. But a few years ago, while the height of success was all around her and Rufus, they had come into contact with a fascinating couple who told them about a man named Jesus the true Son of God. After several months of discussion and study, Julia and Rufus had put their faith and their trust in the one true God. 
Now, for such a wealthy couple, this decision didn't have the same devastating effect it had for Onesimus. But it certainly altered their social status. No longer would they attend the luxurious temple festivals that were regularly thrown for the social elite. Soon they stopped even receiving invitations. Julia graciously declined to sponsor or even to attend those annual games as they always began with sacrifices for the divine emperors. Of course, this move was enormously unpopular. And Rufus very quickly kissed his career in politics goodbye. Even attendance at the parties that had once been famous for hosting each month had all but evaporated. They still managed to maintain a few good relationships with their social equals, but it was clear they didn't belong anymore. After all, Julia and Rufus now viewed the world quite differently. And it's difficult to stay on the inside when you begin to challenge the way boundaries have always been drawn. But perhaps the most difficult was the public shame that Julia and Rufus experienced in society. Of course, this rather humbling station in life was challenging in all sorts of ways. And they sometimes struggled to remember that their former successes in life were based on a set of faulty rules. And they were definitely breaking all the rules. As the host of the church in Ephesus, for example, they invited slaves like Onesimus to come inside their house and to dine with them. If only their non-Christians found out. Indeed, they spent much of their time with people they had no business interacting with, let alone entertaining at their house. As Christians with financial means, they were not only the backbone of ministry in Ephesus, but they were also constantly offering assistance to people with real needs, not least the need to hear the gospel. Of course, this sort of benevolence was not the way the things worked in Ephesus. And sometimes they found themselves wondering, what on earth are we doing? But if such thoughts had occupied their minds at breakfast that morning as they fed Tychicus, after all, Tychicus was a working-class Greek who didn't know Latin or French and who had a rather unattractive accent, they quickly focused to more urgent matters. Tychicus produced a letter from the Apostle Paul, now a prisoner in Rome. The letter was written to the church at Ephesus and was meant to circulate among several other churches in that region. So excited were they to hear this news that they quickly sent word to everyone, slaves like Onesimus, merchants and tradesmen, women at homes with their children, with the instructions for everyone to meet at their house that evening for a meal, followed by Tychicus's public reading of the letter. Of course, the scenario that I've just described is made up in its details. But when we read about Paul's ministry in Ephesus according to Acts, and then read Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we learn that this congregation included people from all backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, slaves and wealthy, male and female. And given the diversity of the church, Paul seems to think that it needs a powerful word of encouragement to maintain the unity of the faith. Now, as we approach this letter nearly 2,000 years after it was written, we must also bear in mind the evocative language that Paul uses. In our passage alone, he uses words like fellow citizen, peace, household of God, holy temple. All these words would have rung bells and whistles for those in Ephesus who regularly heard and saw rival messages 
of citizenship, of peace, of being part of the emperor's household, and of sacred temples. It's no wonder that Paul's message provoked persecution, since his message undercut the way in which the Roman world had been constructed, with the emperor at the top and everyone placed on that triangular grid below him, ranked according to wealth and power. Paul's message proclaimed that another son of God was at the top, and that the Roman pyramid scheme was actually upside down. Unfortunately, we don't have time to discuss this counter-cultural message in greater detail, but you can catch me later if you want to hear more about it. But having at least borne this observation in mind, we're ready to set our passage 2, 11 to 22 within the context of Paul's argument. In 2, 1 to 10, Paul had just explained to the church how these Gentile Christians had been redeemed by God's gracious act of deliverance. And now in our passage, Paul instructs the church to remember their former lives apart from God. Actually, verse 11 contains the first imperative of the letter. The next one, by the way, doesn't appear until a couple of chapters later. But let's just read verses 11 and 12 again. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Because of this calling of redemption from what Paul described earlier in chapter 2 as a terrible life of death, Paul commanded the church always to remember what they once were. In verse 12, he reminds them of the ways their previous life was deficient. First, they were without Christ. Now the word Christ simply means anointed one. It's the translation of the Hebrew Messiah or anointed one. So when Paul stated that these Gentiles were without Christ, he was saying they hadn't enjoyed any deliverance that God had provided to Israel by sending their long-awaited Messiah. The following clause explains it was quite natural to be Messiahless since they weren't even citizens of Israel. They're excluded from the citizenship in Israel. But secondly, Paul reminds them that they were foreigners to the covenants of promise And we see that in verse 12 as well. Israel had been promised several covenants um, via God's initiative. In Genesis 12, 1-3, Abraham had been promised land, descendants, and blessing. In 2 Samuel 7, King David had been promised that one of his descendants would rule on the throne forever. In Jeremiah 31, God had promised Israel he would restore them by providing a new covenant a covenant that he would write on their hearts so they could obey his laws. But these Gentiles were strangers to these covenants. Yes, Onesimus, Julia, and Rufus all. And they thus had no hope, even if Claudius had publicized the catchphrase Hope of Augustus on coins when he became emperor. Third, Paul reminded the church that they were literally without gods in the world And we see that at the end of verse 12. Now our translations all say without God, capital G. But actually it's without gods, godless. Um, It's plural. 
Now, what is Paul doing with the plural here? I think this is very interesting. It's a fair statement, I think, to say that looking back on things, even though they had lots of so-called gods around them, they realized that the gods they worshipped, including the deified emperors, were really not gods at all. They were godless. And in this way, Paul tells them to remember their former life when they were without gods in the world, despite what they previously thought. But if Paul instructed the church to remember their past, verses 13 to 18, he also reminds them how this past had given way to a remarkable change of fortune. Let's just look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We need here only to note how the Messiah, although they were without him in verse 12, without the Messiah, they had been brought near through the Messiah, through his blood on the cross, in fact. And we mustn't simply brush past this. Yeah, yeah, Jesus changed things. Yawn, yawn. Let's think about this fact for a minute. Um, One of the football players at Wycliffe Hall, former professional, when he shows up for the college league uh, matches, it changes things. Um, Everyone just kind of looks in amazement as he scores the goals. And it was no surprise that we won the league this year. Although I have to say, I I was not on the team. (laughs) Wasn't invited for some reason. But let's think about the fact that when Jesus shows up, things change. He changes and alters the way things are lined up. How many times did Jesus do this in the Gospels? Just ask four fishermen. Ask blind beggars. Ask a certain tax collector, little Zacchaeus. Ask people who were supposed to stay dead. And for this church, ask Onesimus, the idol maker, if he really wants to go back, ironically, to a life without gods. He makes them every day. Or ask Julia and Rufus if hope could really be found in an imperial message of peace and security. Jesus had changed things by bringing them near to God. And so in verses 14 to 18, he explained two ways in which they had been brought near to God through Jesus. The first way in verse 14, Jesus ushers in true peace. A peace that unites all believers in him. Let's just read verses 14 to 16 now. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, here I must pause to say that despite some English translations of verse 15, Paul was not pouring scorn on the Mosaic law. Elsewhere, such as in Romans 7, 12, Paul affirmed the law is holy, righteous, and good, and that it's God's perfect gift to humanity, to Israel specifically. And so here we must resist translating it God abolished or God destroyed And the TNIV, the new translation of the NIV, has actually changed it from abolished to set aside. And I think that's probably a better translation. 
on this understanding, Paul recognized that the law, as good as it was, was given to the children of Israel in order that they might remain separate from the polytheistic nations around them. In other words, the law was meant to keep them away from unclean Gentiles like Onesimus, Julia, and Rufus, out of the community of God. And so the division between Jew and Gentile had been destroyed by setting aside this law. The Jewish Messiah had made things different. Gentiles were no longer considered unclean. But in Jesus, they were brought near by the people of God, to the people of God. And we read about this in Acts 11, when Peter gets this great vision of of unclean food, and he's told to eat it. And he only realizes later that unclean food represented what he considered unclean Gentiles. And so he goes into Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and Cornelius and his family is saved. Indeed, as we continue to read verse 15, we see that the purpose of God setting aside these boundary markers of the law was to create one new humanity in him and to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross. But if Jesus ushered in a peace that unites all people through faith, in verses 17 and 18 we find a second way in which all people have brought near to, been brought near to God through Jesus. In short, Jesus proclaimed and he preached uh, the gospel to all people. Look at verse 17 and 18. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And in verses 19 and 22, Paul provides a conclusion to these verses. And here we must only note that Paul was reconstructing the way these Gentiles were taught to view the world. Regardless of their social location in the past, they had been foreigners and resident aliens in the only kingdom that mattered, God's kingdom. They may have enjoyed noble birth, Roman citizenship, or perhaps they envied it. But these titles were all silly. They meant nothing. But now through faith in Jesus, they had received a citizenship that mattered. Not a citizenship from Rome, but of God's kingdom. And they had become part of a household. Not the emperor's, but God's own household. And not as slaves, but as heirs. And this building into which they were placed was a holy temple that far outstripped the temples of Artemis and Augustus in Ephesus. For in this temple dwelled the one true God by His Spirit. But why remember all this? Why did Paul say, remember, the only command in this chapter? And how might Paul's command to remember our past apply to us? Two main points. First, we must remember how the early Christians, made up of Jew and Gentile, of slave and free, of male and female, just didn't belong in the same house. They didn't belong in the same dinner table, partaking of the same communion meal. And yet the gospel that was radically altered the way the world had been organized. And now it was natural for them to eat together in Christian love. And it was only for this reason that the nearby province of Bithynia 
in the early 2nd century, only about 40 years later. The Roman governor Pliny, he reports to the emperor Trajan that the church in Bithynia had all manner of people from every socioeconomic standing and that two slave women were apparently deaconesses of the church. And this brings us to a second point by way of implication. And here I guess I'll simply ask questions to us. What sorts of values does the gospel rearrange here in Oxford? In a place where most people, including me, I admit, have several letters before and after their names and have worked a long time to get them, where normal conversation includes housing prices and schools, and where it wasn't too far in the distant past when a literal wall stood that divided two groups of people, the effects of which are still felt today. In a place like this, how much of this value system have we swallowed hook, line, and sinker? All too often, we are just become an extension of the values of society around us. But Paul's gospel built a new foundation, a foundation built on Jesus. Perhaps one of the biggest challenges for us tonight, for me in particular, is to remember our past life when we were excluded from those things that really mattered. Jesus has done the unthinkable. He's realigned the way we view the world, and he's put us in the center. But how many of us, either because we enjoyed it or because we've always longed for it, how many of us slip back into a view of the world where the wealthy and the powerful are at the top, where we find our identity by what we do, where we live, where we work, what accent we have, and where we evaluate others by these same standards. My wife and I were going to a church in a big city in America, and we were visiting this church for the first time, a huge church of thousands of people. We filled out the little visitor information card, and we were sent a letter. And in this letter, the pastor of the church said, I hope that you felt comfortable because everyone looked really much like you and very similar to you. And we hope this gave you a good experience. Now, this principle is common in many churches today. It's actually called the homogeneous unit principle. It's how to grow a church. And yet, it seems that Paul's gospel is contrary to that tactic. One of Paul's primary aims in this letter was to bring a diverse church together in unity. And we see this most clearly, not just in this passage, but read chapters 4 and 5 more specifically. And if that's true, then surely the way to bring about this unity was to remind us what really matters. You were excluded from the kingdom that mattered, but that's no more in Jesus. And so if we studied this passage tonight, we too must remember that in Christ, God has brought those who were near and those who were far off together as one new humanity. This is the power of the gospel. This is what we believe, and we must live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, may we live in accordance with this truth that Jesus is the foundation from which the whole building is being built. 
And may we do this in unity. Amen.